from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in London, England, on this week's edition, the ins and outs of plastics exports, why investors are dipping their toes into water risk, the British view on sustainable business, and why even the city of Detroit is discouraging solo car use. We're getting on the bus this week on 350. It's June 14th, 2019. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me, as always, this time from across the pond at her home base in Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hello, Joel. That's my poor, really <laughs> bad parody of, of the hello uh, British greeting, but uh, sorry. Hello. Yes, there you go. Much yes, better. Yes, there you go. I can do it better. See, I should be in London, not you. I can do it better than you can. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, if that's the criteria, then I just need uh, some speech <laughs> lessons for next year, and I'll be all, all good. But in all seriousness, why are you in London this week? I love coming here. It's become sort of an annual trip, Heather, that uh, anchored by the uh, annual summit of the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which was yesterday, Thursday, um, at which I spoke a couple of times to talk about sort of the North American perspective on the circular economy, which is apropos since we have this great event coming up next week called Circularity 19 in Minneapolis. But around that, I built sort of a two-week trip, uh, which is, uh, again, sort of an annual tradition of of just traveling around and, and having meetings. So I was in Geneva last week, and I met with the World Business Council for Sustainable Development and the World Economic Forum and some others, and then on to Amsterdam to talk circular economy at Fashion for Good and with a terrific nonprofit there called Circle Economy. And then uh, this week in London, where I've been running about, my favorite favorite, favorite thing to do is to schedule meetings throughout the day with like an hour in between that I can walk. And so on, let's see, I guess it was Tuesday, I did 11 miles, just walking through London, just getting from meeting to meeting. So much fun. And um, yeah, and then I'll spend a lot of time. Oh, th- th- Wednesday, uh, I did this really fun event with uh, my friend and really my mentor in sustainability, John Elkington, uh, the founder of Volans and the coiner of Triple Bottom Line and so many other memes that we all talk about on a daily basis. And uh, usually I interview him at our events, but this time he and I were interviewed uh, by one of his colleagues at a public event uh, at Somerset House, which is uh, this great facility, um, like everything here, great history here right along the Thames. So that's my week in London. Well, you have to drop by the Sir John Soane's Museum if you've never been there. I have not. Um, but uh, the given all of those wonderful events you just mentioned, I think it's pretty, you know, not, not surprising that there's some pretty smashing news out of the UK this week. Um, I, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, and it's been the talk a lot. A lot of my conversations this week, and you'll hear a little bit in a few minutes, a conversation that I had with James and Marie, the editor-in-chief of Business Green, which is kind of sort of kind of our counterpart here in the UK, although a good partner of ours. But on Wednesday, uh, Prime Minister Theresa May announced that it's going that 
UK will establish in national law a target of net zero greenhouse gas emissions by the middle of the century, by 2050. And that will make the UK the first major industrialized economy to make carbon neutrality by 2050 part of a national legal framework for addressing climate change. So it's kind of big news, um, although I do have to say that um, the the nation already had a national legally binding target that it created 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 2008, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by 80% by 2050 compared to 1990 baseline. But now they're going, I guess you could say, the full Monty to 100%. And, um, and again, it's enshrined in, in law. How did that first law do? I mean, you mentioned that they've been pushing this for a while, at least, you know, at a smaller percentage. How, how impactful has, has that been? You know, I don't have that data in terms of, of where the, the nation is right now in terms of its greenhouse gas reductions. I can tell you that uh, earlier, I guess it was uh, late May, early June, the country uh, spent two weeks without burning any coal in its first uh, electricity, uh, totally coal-free for two weeks, which was a first. It had gone for a day or a few days here and there. And so, you know, they're clearly on a path. Um, and again, uh, you'll hear uh, my conversation with James Murray talk a little bit about sort of what's going on uh, there versus here. And the conversation I had with, uh, with John Elkington, again, similar uh, territory. And John Elkington, you know, actually criticized this move today, uh, this week, um, here in the UK around carbon neutral by 2050, basically saying it's it's much too long. We should be doing getting there much more quickly. And so it's, you know, uh, in general, if you've been following the press releases and the Twitter streams and, and all the other news coming out of uh, the UK right now, the, it, everybody seems to be lauding uh, and applauding the the UK government for doing this, but um, you know there's a case to be made that we need to be getting further faster. Yeah, much more aggressive. And in fact, by the way, Scotland's already committed to reducing greenhouse gases to net zero by 2045, right. five years ahead of the UK government's target. So mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, how that works. But um, and the Welsh government said it wants to commit to. Uh, net zero, but also by 2050. So there, this, this whole region is is on the on the program. Well, I hope they succeed. <laughs> I would hope so. I would hope you hope that. So yeah. So yeah, that's been um, that's uh, a part of of this week. But let's get to the rest of the weekend review. Okay, I'll start us off this week, Joel, with a story from a professor at the University of California at Berkeley, Kate O'Neill. And it's a great piece about um, the sort of dilemma that developing countries are facing and increasingly facing as they want to uh, export their plastic waste. As we know, many of the sort of more, shall we say, privileged countries have, have been shipping their stuff out of their um, areas and and off their oceans and to other places in the world. And um, with the China ban on on imports of scrap material, this has made some other developing nations sort of the um, unwilling or 
or in some cases willing, you know, recipient of this uh, plastic stuff and, and all of the various items that we're trying to get rid of. So this piece is um, a great look at how the, the sort of those countries are now fighting back, if you will, and, um, and they're saying no too. So it's forcing the United States and other countries to get with the program, if you will, and get their recycling systems and their um, composting systems and the reuse systems in their own, on their own shores and in their own, um, you know, land in better, better shape. So I, I, I think it's a great, you know, generally speaking, and this is something we, we probably should do a better job of is understanding the sort of the, the relationship between the, this, this stuff that we create in the, the OECD economies, the G20 economies, and where that ends up, you know, it, it has been an issue where we, we, we tend to dump this stuff, and I'll use that word because that's what it means, is on, on developing nations. And, you know, the good news is that some of these countries are figuring out ways of, of making business out of that. The bad news is that, you know, they're often not in control of where it ends up and, and how, it's being, uh, how it's being shipped into their into their own nations. Yeah, and some countries like China, with their Operation National Sword, uh, are restricting imports of of scrap or post consumer waste, and and that's uh, really what's driving a lot of this. And yeah, I, I've long said, and pulling a page from uh, long ago, a U.S. congressman named. Uh, uh, Tip O'Neill, that all circularity is local or should be local, which is to say that we should be, as we keep molecules in play as part of a circular economy, that it really should be kept in play at some version of local, not necessarily in the same city, but ideally in the same region or indefinitely within the same country, because uh, it's not just a matter of you know dumping our stuff on poor folks in other parts of the world, but it's also a matter of keeping assets locally and not uh, exporting assets, which in a circular economy, waste is seen as an asset. And how do we make sure that that stays, whether it's a, a metal or a plastic or food waste or uh, textiles, um, how do we make sure those don't get shipped off to other places where, uh, you know, yes, it may be a burden for them, but we also lose the value. And I think that's going to be an important part as this thing called the circular economy comes into play. You know, and it may be, um, and, and, and as this story notes, it's being forced upon us in, in the United States, right? I mean, these other countries are finally saying, nope. Um, and as we start considering our trade relationships with other countries, this could be like that whole point you're making about the local issue. I mean, this could be a big opportunity um, for country, for businesses in the United States that that they're not, maybe thinking about holistically enough yet. So, Well, the, if next week's uh, event is any indication, there's a lot of interest. Uh, just, uh, you know, when we were, we were, as you know, Heather, we were launching this event, uh, uh, I guess, last year, and we were saying, okay, this is the first time event circularity. It's really the first major circular economy event in North America. You know, how many people should we expect? We've never done this before. And we stuck our finger in our mouth and put it up in the air and sort of felt the the winds, and we said, well, you know, it would be really great if we can get 500 people. Well, as you know, we have cut off registration at about 850, which is really sort of remarkable, but it really speaks to 
the interest in this topic. And we'll report from Minneapolis uh, next week. We'll be uh, do our, broad, our podcast from there. You know how what that conversation is like, and how much it's not just recycling 2.0. And I'll also I can talk compare that with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation event uh, that I attended this week. But let's we were talking about China. Let's 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 move over to a different uh, uh, part of the equation, which also relates to something that that I wrote, but also a piece um, from Business Green, Michael Holder. Um, who I did not meet this week because he was on holiday uh, when I went met with uh, James Murray and 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 our new newly minted thirty under thirty Madeline or Maddie Cuff, uh, but uh, Michael wrote a piece about why the U.S. China trade war is leaving firms vulnerable to soy risk, and this is um, particularly of import at a time when we are starting to lean into the topic of protein alternatives as alternatives specifically to meat and and how soy and other plant-based uh, protein are, are going to become increasingly important in our economy. And now we have this trade war with China and um, that could be mucking things up. Yeah. I mean, there's two big issues here. One is just the sort of realization that animal feed, right? And that's, and that's, where this a lot of the soy is is heading for it's being used to feed um, animals that we're eating and, and sort of that you know there's vicious cycle there um, and and so that's part of the issue that this story covers that the fact that we're not paying enough attention to the impact of that of growing that food um, on on forests and so forth so that's that's issue number one issue number two is also goes back to this thing we've talked about several times in the last few weeks which is the the farming community in the United States and how this trade tit for tat with China is going on and how it's impacting the agricultural industry in the United States. And it turns out that US and Brazil are two of the largest soy producers. And lo and behold, um, China, which is one of the biggest importers, has started buying a lot more from Brazil. So this is one of those twofold impacts where the American agricultural industry is, is, is getting whacked because of, of this Chinese spat. Um, so because the U.S. farmers are not being able to uh, sell as much of their supply into China as, as in the past. So, I mean, that's sort of a, more of an economic impact, not necessarily a sustainable. Well, I guess it, I mean, if you think about it, where are those, why are those resources being, you know, grown? Like, should you, if China's not going to be importing that from the United States, what should that farmland be used for? I mean, is there a better, you know, use for it? So well, and and also, should we be growing soy soy to feed the cows to make meat, and 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 that's you know pretty high up the food chain. And so, um, you know, there, there's a lot of issues in this, and this relates to a, to a piece that I wrote uh, this week in in my Monday morning newsletter about transforming food systems and how we're just starting to think more and more about how those work and and the really rich. Uh, a menu, if you will, of topics around climate change and biodiversity and food waste and soft commodities like growing soy and all of that, improving livelihoods of farmers and, of course, nutrition, which is always should be on the menu. And and this whole topic uh, and protein diversification, as we talked about it, is, is certainly a piece of that as well. This is just all of a sudden becoming a lot more visible in the sustainability, the corporate sustainability agenda, even if you're not in the uh, food business, although there's also 
you know, textiles, fibers, and, and forestry that's very much uh, impacted here. But I, this is a topic that I we haven't covered enough, and and I see us uh, leaning into increasingly how to think about food. And this goes to what you're saying, Heather, around you know what should we be growing where, and what should you know things like soy should it go into to cattle feed, or should that be more for human consumption? And what is the highest and best use of our agricultural land and the you know, resources that go into that, particularly in a climate-impacted yeah. world. And there's so many other issues that could be occasioned by this Chinese trade war. I worry about the manufacturing implications along the way as well. So definitely, you know, another reason to be paying really close attention to what's going on uh, in China. So let's uh, turn the steering wheel a little bit in a different direction and head to Detroit and other cities, Montreal and Lisbon, which are looking at encouraging their residents to ditch solo cars. What's up? Uh, I had the good fortune to go to a conference that Michelin hosts now. I mean, I think this is the fourth year, third year, maybe, uh, yeah. But it's called Moving On Summit. So yeah, you, you podcasted yeah, from that I, I last it, week. Yeah, I mentioned oh. it last week. Um, I just want to you know flag them for 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 the good work they're doing because it's a pretty impressive conference. Um, and this is one of the, this was sort of a uh, I sat in a number of different sessions. A lot of them had to do as as is my you know sort of like little bent. I love data. I love technology, and I I, I listen a lot to about how technology can impact. Um, planning and, and, and sort of the solutions that we, we use for lots of different things. And in this particular case, uh, those cities that you just mentioned are all looking at a couple, two different things. I, I kind of bucketed it into the, to two different strategies. First of all, all three of them are looking very closely at, at what technologies they can use to basically create seamless in, uh, connections, if you will, between public transit so buses and, and trains and, and all manner of other um, options that they have at the city level, and private services. So making it simple to basically book book a, a, a commute or book a um, you know a, a trip to the airport using different modes of transportation um, and being able to to see what the best option is. Um, and, and there was this great it was just perfect. You know, here we are at a transportation conference and. The last morning of the conference, none of the shuttle buses were working from the hotel. And it was because... Oh, no. Yeah. And it was because there was a, um, there's a lot of construction going on in, in my fair city of Montreal. Um, and there was a huge um, crane being moved, and it blocked the bus access to the site. So, you know, there's people standing in line figuring out how to get to the conference. Do I use ride sharing? Can I take a taxi? What's going on? And, um, you know, the, the point made by one of the speakers later that morning, who also, by the way, is trying to get to the conference, um, was that, you know, we could use data in such a um, uh, more valuable ways to help riders that figure out, number one, what's the problem? Number two, what are my options because of this problem? And so that, that was sort of the holy grail, if you will, of, of um, how these things could be used to help with personal mobility. Um, and one of the points that was made by a, a fellow from Lisbon, the, um, the deputy mayor there for transportation issues, is that it, there is no average rider. <laughs> there's, there's no average passenger. Everyone has different things they're doing throughout the day that you cannot, 
you cannot just sort of take this one profile and, and invent a system focused on that one profile. You have to use data in a way that allows people to personalize their, their, their you know, transportation experience or mobility experience on a, on a, a daily basis. Um, and one other strategy that I'll mention that I just found really fascinating um, was that all, all of these cities, that um, Detroit included, are looking at ways of creating more simple flat rate fee structures for their system. So in, in Montreal, for example, there, there has been a, uh, you know, there, and there, this is not unusual. I mean, in, in, in New Jersey, you can buy a monthly pass for the train. But now in, in some of these places, you're able to buy a monthly pass for the train plus the buses plus, oh, by the way, um, in Montreal, there's a, um, a, a ride share, a bike sharing network called Bixi. And it's got, you know, 7,500 7, bikes associated with it. And it's been completely separate from the other systems. And so they're looking at a way of layering that into that monthly fee. So Montreal, Lisbon, um, you know, and, and other cities are looking at ways of creating more simple flat rate system uh, fees that like just let you get from point A to point B in whatever way makes sense for you that day. You know, you don't have to commit to this much in train and this much in buses, you just get there how you want to get there. So that, that for me, it was just a, a really compelling um, example of the things that are possible, um, but the things that are only possible in, in collaboration between the public and private sectors. So pretty cool stuff. Depending on whose data you use, an estimated 75% of multinational organizations face real risks when it comes to fresh water, not just in terms of its availability, but also quality. They acknowledge this, but they're increasing their withdrawals anyway in the course of day-to-day -day business. But as environmental, social, and governance issues reshape corporate conversations with the investment community, these habits are coming under far more scrutiny. I spoke with Monica Freeman, Director of Investor Water Issues at Sustainability Nonprofit Series to get a better sense of what's driving the heightened interest and why now. One theme is crystal clear. Investors are seeing a far closer link between questionable corporate water strategies and real threats to human rights. Here's Freeman's take on that link and how investors are addressing it. The human rights implications of water risk are large and potentially very material and catastrophic, not only for companies, but communities and economies. A perfect example of that is the recent tailings dam failure in Brazil um, by Vale. So investors now recognize that they need to engage the entire industry, the entire mining industry around these large tailings facilities that gather wastewater and mine tailings um, waste uh, around how safe they are. And they're seeing that systematically these thousands of structures across the globe could not, may not be safe and pose a really large, substantial material risk to companies, but also an incredible human rights risk. Um, the last failing, you know, over 300 people lost their lives a few years before, you know, over a dozen and many of these uh, facilities potentially pose risk to human uh, rights and human health 
in other parts of the world as well. So investors really see more clearly, sadly, through this example, that there really is also related to water a very strong human rights component and human rights responsibility. Another example of the human right to water elements is through a recent shareholder proposal that was put to Chevron asking the company to really assess their human right to water risks and to make sure that they have the processes in place to protect the human right to water across their different operations. So this resolution, I think, is the tip of the iceberg in really highlighting to the investor community, but also more to the corporate community that large companies across the globe operating in often um, areas with poor governance uh, or, or policies and practices must be far more aware of how their operations are potentially impacting communities um, that really uh, may not have access to clean water or, or uh, fresh water based on some of their operations, their accidents, their spills, and that there are responsibilities that they really should be assessing related to these risks. While the human rights examples mentioned by Freeman were specific to a couple of industries, mining and oil exploration, water risks are being felt across most traditional sectors of the economy, from food to technology manufacturing. Here's her take on the industries being scrutinized most closely by investors and why. We did a recent study using the, some SASB materiality data, so SASB being the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board, and we looked at where is water coming up as being material for investors and for companies, both from a water supply perspective and also from a water quality and wastewater management perspective. And what surprised us, what surprised us is that Looking at the four major stock exchange indices uh, globally, uh, from you know small cap U.S. companies to uh, large global uh, indexes and emerging market indices, is that between 53 to 60 percent of the stocks listed in those indices are in actually in industries with medium to higher water risk. So what surprised us there is that in in aggregate investors actually have very high exposure to water risks uh, through their investment uh, portfolios, especially as universal owners. And some of those larger risk exposure sectors are food and beverage companies, utilities, also uh, um, industries such as semiconductors and technology. For, so for example, to produce one semiconductor wafer chip uh, is anywhere from a thousand liters of water per microchip to many thousand. Likewise, other industries are such as apparel and textiles and oil and gas and mining as well, and several others that you can see in our report, which is under the Series Investor Water Toolkit mm -hmm. website. Finally, I asked Freeman to reflect on how companies are addressing investor concerns. She cited several examples of action from the food and fashion sectors. But you won't be surprised to hear that the scenarios that are being resolved most successfully are ones that involve stakeholders from both the public and private sectors. In other words, it's not just the companies, but it's the communities around them that are solving this. Here are some of her thoughts on best practices companies can use to address investor water concerns. Some of the better practices are 
um, such as General Mills, for example, has really been mapping and studying, you know, where do they have a lot of, uh, of operations and key supply chains in different regions of the world, and then uh, turning and reinvesting uh, into those watersheds and those in those communities, as an example. Uh, other examples are, for example, Gap. Uh, you know, apparel companies have massive water risk exposure and a lot of water issues related from everything from cotton production to how they dye clothing, which can be very negative to to water um, resources, especially in developing countries. And there's been a lot of poor practices and issues there. So they've been doing uh, really, you know, trying to study where that water risk exposure is, but also, you know, working with their communities. And one, pro- you know, projects that they have underway are, are, for example, really looking at the connection between women and water. Some of their workforce is very much tilted towards women and making sure that uh, women have access to drinking water and sanitation services globally is one project that they're working on. I I think, though, the the way to really think about water risk is that it's going to take far more than just uh, companies uh, on their own really looking and studying water. It's going to take also investors working with their companies as shareholders and also investors and companies talking more to water policymakers and regulators. So I think some of the better practices are um, an example of um, some of the work we're doing in California, which of course has been very water stressed and has a lot of water issues, is a lot of companies that have large agriculture supply chains or headquarters in California have been working with series a program called Connect the Drops. And this program is actually bringing and recognizing that companies have a lot of uh, value and um, a lot to protect in California, but only if water is sustainably managed and water is, uh, you know, sufficiently and abundant and clean. And so they're recognizing the importance of really supporting good and strong sustainable water regulations and policies. So they've been working with us to support, you know, policymakers to have more protective and, and sounder practices when it comes to regulating this very common resource because, of course, water is such a common resource and it's going to really take sound water management from everyone, um, not just companies, to really ensure that economies, companies and communities stay healthy. One of my stops in London this week was at the offices of Business Green, kind of a first cousin of GreenBiz, uh, an editorial operation covering the world of sustainable business, and had a chance to have lunch with James Murray, the ed- editor-in-chief of Business Green. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. How are you doing? Lovely to be here again and see you guys. Um, so one of the things I was a little surprised to learn is that Green New Deal is part of the conversation here in the UK. Yeah, absolutely, it is, and there are actually there are some uh, British politicians who claim they came up with the idea first. So, in the wake of the two thousand and eight crash, uh, there was a group of uh, politicians around Caroline Lucas, the Green MP, and some Labour politicians as well, who 
sparked this idea of a Green New Deal, sort of channeling FDR, massive state investment, massive focus on decarbonisation. And the argument then in the wake of the economic crash was that this is a way of stimulating the economy, driving growth, getting people into work, uh, but also delivering the deep decarbonisation that we need to have. Uh, and of course, that idea had a bit of a buzz in the media, as these ideas do, for about six months to a year, and then sadly drifted away as we went off on our austerity experiment, which uh, didn't work quite so well. Uh, and then now, obviously, thanks to AOC and Sunrise Movement and others in the US, uh, Green New Deal has, has been revived and, and, and captured the zeitgeist. And, and we're now seeing in the UK, uh, a number of leading politicians start to talk again about how uh, the UK can embrace that idea once again. I mean, it's official op uh, policy of the Labour opposition, um, who are uh, hoping to form the next government, although the polls are very volatile at the moment. So, you know, that idea of really big state-led driven decarbonisation um, is resonating far beyond the US borders. But what's also resonating here is the net zero movement. And in fact, it's actually becoming official doctrine. Yeah, it absolutely is. I mean, it's very much two sides of the same coin. So Green New Deal is obviously one way of potentially achieving net zero. And there are other sort of more centre-right market-led mechanisms for doing it. Uh, but net zero is absolutely dominating the environmental and green business conversation in the UK at the moment. We've had an official report from the government's uh, advisors, the Committee on Climate Change, saying we should do it. We are awaiting confirmation literally any day now from the UK government that they will embrace that advice and set a new target to make the UK the first G7 major economy to uh, have a goal to decarbonize fully uh, by mid-century. So net zero is uh, en entirely about carbon or is it about anything else? It's primarily about carbon and climate change. It's, it's about ensuring that you are making no further contribution to global warming or, or what, however you want to term it, ensuring that any emissions that you do have are fully offset or, or, or reduced through uh, carbon capture and storage or massive reforestation within your own country's borders. So, it, you know, it's, it's, it's basically the only way eventually you stop climate change is to stop emitting. You have to, that's, it's as blunt as that. And that's what the IPCC has made clear. That's what the Paris Agreement ultimately aspires to do. Uh, and the UK is hoping to be the first country to sort of put that in law, although lots of others are following. And we're starting to see a real movement around this idea that, you know, we, we had these targets of like 80% emissions cuts, 60% emissions cuts. And I think with businesses, investors, scientists, everyone's starting to understand that's not going to be enough. It has to be full decarbonisation uh, within a matter of three or four decades, you know, before lots of people in the workforce have even retired. What's the role of the corporate community in all of this in Green New Deal and Net Zero? Are they behind this? Are they fighting it? Are they weighing in at all? How, how does that work? It, it's a tricky question. Uh, I mean, obviously, the business community is always characterised as this homogenous whole, but it's not at all. There are deep, deep splits within the business community. The good news in the UK is the mainstream business community, lots of big businesses, the CBI, the biggest trade body, uh, the growing green economy, the renewables companies and everything, they are all fully on board with this. They've called on politicians to deliver the net zero target. They've called on politicians to deliver more ambitious policy. They want it to happen. Lots of investors feel the same way. So there's that big green business movement, much as you've seen in the US as well. Um, the, the flip side to that is there are still 
heavy emitters and, and incumbent industries that are more wary of it. Uh, we don't have a position where those companies now would say, we just don't care about this stuff. They're much more about, let's be realistic. How do we fund the R&D that allows us to decarbonise without losing lots of jobs or obliterating whole communities that rely on these jobs? So we're starting to see the, the narrative of what is referred to as a just transition uh, gather some traction. Uh, but the really encouraging thing about the net zero discussion in the UK is it really is embedded in business and investment realities. And as a result, that makes you feel it's got quite strong roots. It means that if the political wind changes, it'll be harder for future leaders to just unpick it all because the the core drivers of the economy are on board with it. So like me and the, our editorial team in the States, you've been following this stuff every day for years and years. How are you feeling about all this? Are you feeling more optimistic, less optimistic. You have uh, a couple of kids yeah, now, young yeah. kids. And how's, how are you personally feeling about what's going on in the world of business and sustainability? Oh, that's a, that's such a big question. I mean, I, I in the past year, I've written two, two big, quite long pieces on this. One last summer called Fear and Loathing on the Climate Beat, which was very... Um, depressed, to be honest, and quite downbeat about the prospects and what we were facing. And then another one at the start of the year called The Kids Are All Right about the the Greta Thunberg movement and the school strikes and the shift in the cultural zeitgeist in favour of these new technologies, these new business approaches. And um, I oscillate between those two extremes often on a daily or indeed hourly basis. And I can see you nodding along. I think this is the the cross we all have to bear. Anyone who works in this space is that you, you kind of you're constantly aware that um, it is deeply, deeply challenging. Times are pretty dark on occasions. The, the, the climate crisis is going to definitely get worse and worse and worse, and that is something we will be wrestling with for our entire lives. And, I mean, I read David Wallace-Wells' Uninhabitable Earth, which I'd recommend to everyone, and he's right. It is worse than the vast majority of people accept or engage with. Um, and the flip side of that is that you can't give up, and there are lots of really exciting um inspiring things happening that do hold out that glimmer of hope and uh, you know if you'd said a couple of years ago that the UK and indeed other economies were planning to fully decarbonize within 30 years that would have been inconceivable if you've said every single front runner to be the next US president with the exception of the incumbent are talking again about full decarbonization within 30 40 years that would have been deemed extremely unlikely. You'd have expected much more triangulation and, 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 and watering down of the message. If you'd said that the UK would have operated for two weeks without any coal power whatsoever and have a renewables industry that's providing over a quarter of our power on an almost daily basis, again, even two, three years ago, that would not have been predicted. So, you know, there are, those are the things that comfort you on the, the dark nights when you do look at your children and think this could be a, a deeply challenging century. Well, we won't give up if you won't. So uh, thanks for keeping on it. James Murray is editor-in-chief of Business Green in London. Always great to see you, James. Thanks again, Joel, and um, same to you guys. One of the fun things I did this week in London was I uh, was placed in the blue chair, which is kind of the hot seat for the firm called Volans, which is uh, uh, run by or founded by uh, my friend and mentor John Elkington, uh, and he is also the founder of the of the firm Sustainability. No longer affiliated to that, but has, has a thirty. 
five-year legacy in, in sustainable business. And uh, great conversation talking about uh, and comparing and contrasting the European-UK view with uh, the North American view and talking a little bit beyond that. Here's a little sampling of that conversation. Several weeks ago, many of you will know who live in the area, that Waterloo Bridge was occupied by Extinction Rebellion. So every day we'd walk past them and we'd talk to the campaigners and we'd be fascinated by grandmothers chained to the bottom of buses and trucks and all the rest of it. That was great fun. But about five or six weeks prior to that, we had invited Gail Bradbrook, one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, into the office just to explain what they were planning to do and why and what their theory of change was. And I found that fascinating. So when they started the protest six days in, the pushback started where businesses, particularly in the Oxford Street area, started to say, we've lost 12 million pounds, we've lost footfall, we, you know, and poor us. We were asked to try and see what we could do to get a, a, a slightly different business view into the discussion. So we've got 23 CEOs, Paul Coleman among them, most of them in the green sustainability space, to, 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 to sign a letter to the Times. And what's been really dramatic about that is they were getting into bed with Extinction Rebellion. And I had calls within the first few days from CEOs saying, why are you doing that? That's political. Um, and, but I think the point I would make is this whole agenda is in the process of becoming political. We've all got to become more political than we're comfortable with being. Yeah. We've all got to be more activists than we currently are. Uh, uh, one CEO said, can we invite them in? And we said, uh, just be a little bit careful at this stage because we don't know quite what quantity we're dealing uh, with here. But the oddity, and it's again like the Green Consumer Guide period, is we suddenly had companies, not exactly lining up, but some really interesting companies saying, come in and talk to our board. So I think there is something going on where senior leaders are aware that the world's changing around them yeah. and want to be... Engaged. Yeah, and certainly in, in, in my country, the, this is all political, which is just shameful uh, that science has become so political. And we're starting to see a movement, and it's just in the emergent stages, where uh, companies are going to be increasingly judged and rated and maybe ranked on their political activity. So right now, they're ranked sort of one of two extremes of, of the, of the so imaginary bell curve, which is the companies, fossil fuel companies that are fighting climate legislation, mm -hmm. and sort of the, the typical bad guys in the in the in the climate uh, business world, and the proactive companies, the Paul Pullmans and uh, the others that are you know really taking a leadership role uh, and and speaking out. But in the middle is big fat middle of the bell curve is most companies that are just sitting there quietly, not engaged. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, is it influence, influence map, which mm -hmm. is based yes. here, I think, yeah. right, yes. has, has done some of this. And they only rank those two extremes. And I would imagine it's 90, if not 95% of companies in the middle there. That's going to increasingly become unacceptable to sit on the side. That silence is going to be seen as, as basically working uh, against the climate agenda. And that's, it's a beginning movement. There are a number of uh, initiatives 
that are quietly taking shape in the states. Yeah. They're going to be, and, and a couple, couple more points about it, because I think it's interesting how you're starting to strategize in that. First of all, one is you know, simply getting the uh, a, a coterie of, of CEOs who are in, and hope that that would build. But the other direction, which I think is really interesting, is the, is the bottom-up side, that the employee engagement. I mean, that's, and taking a page from the LGBT movement, that's how, in the United States, that legislation at the national level uh, really uh, was enacted because uh, employees of companies are saying, we don't want to go to that meeting in North Carolina. They have you know, bathroom laws that they've signed or they've enacted. And then we're seeing that now with, by the way, with abortion in Alabama and, and other southern states that companies don't want to go there. But, the, but I don't know, that's a, that's, that's a whole other story. But the LGBT movement, that was really in, in many ways success, successful because companies said, they stood up and said, we, we, we're going to pull out of that. The NCAA basketball champions that were supposed to, mm -hmm. championship match, it was supposed to be in Charlotte, North Carolina. Can we do that with climate? Hi, this is Katie Fehrenbacher, senior writer covering transportation for Green Biz. And this week, I had the distinct pleasure of hosting the head of sustainable mobility for Inca Group, you know, IKEA, on a webcast on decarbonizing e-commerce shipping. Her name is Angela Holtberg, and she's a bit of a rock star. So basically, here's what's happening with IKEA when it comes to shipping and mobility. More and more people around the world are moving into city centers. This is reducing car ownership and changing online and offline buying habits. IKEA stores today are mostly located outside of urban centers. I mean, so think about how far you have to drive to get to your closest IKEA. It's probably a ways away. And as young people in cities give up cars or just don't feel like driving 30 minutes or an hour to an IKEA warehouse, more and more of IKEA's sales are beginning to happen online. In addition, companies like Amazon, which are offering free one-day shipping to Prime members, are changing customers' expectations around shipping and hiding the environmental externalities associated with free, fast shipping from the end customer. Online, IKEA customers are also behaving differently than their brick-and-mortar customers. Often, IKEA customers in stores buy everything they need from the store in one go. You know, you go in, you get the couch, the pillows, the blanket, add in the tea lights, and you're on your way. But when IKEA customers buy online, they tend to buy differently. So they buy items separately. Maybe they might buy the pillows on Monday and the blanket on Wednesday. And oftentimes, customers use multiple shipments to deliver what might have been one purchase in the store. So that is also causing a surge in the shipping of IKEA's goods in urban centers. And finally, since IKEA has long been fo focused on sustainability, the increased greenhouse gas emissions of shipping those goods is a big problem for them. To tackle this problem, IKEA announced that in five major cities, Amsterdam, Shanghai, Los Angeles, New York, and Paris, it would use electric delivery vehicles for last mile delivery of all of its goods by 2020. So yes, that's next year. And by 2025, all last mile delivery globally of IKEA goods will be done with EVs or other zero emission technology, says the company. And here's what Angela said IKEA has learned so far about trying to reach these goals. So what we learned so far um, since we made these commitments uh, were that there are challenges, definitely. Um, 
One of the most important ones that I face a lot is actually that a lot of people in the industry even still see this as something that will happen maybe in a few years. They don't see it as something that's happening here and now. Um, for IKEA, not owning our own fleet, um, that is quite crucial. So we don't have delivery trucks. We work with external service providers all across the world. So this request from us that we actually engage in conversations with all our partners to say, look, this needs to happen now. And we need to see a mindset shift still uh, in a lot of parts of this industry. We also see um, other barriers or, or challenges that we need to address. Availability of vehicles, uh, definitely in many markets, uh, is a big barrier. A lack of charging infrastructure, I think we see that across the globe, actually. And it's something um, which is very frustrating to us, of course, because it seems like building charging infrastructure should not be that hard. And today, it's actually ourselves. Um, as a home furnishing retailer, building this charging infrastructure. We've done it for our customers for years. We offer charging at 75%, probably a bit more, of all our um, stores across the world. So we have some, some experience, and now we need to start building this charging infrastructure also for commercial vehicles. And we need to also connect the charging infrastructure to what we're doing with renewable energy so we can really keep it as clean as possible. And we see when we build the charging infrastructure, we also see actually that energy capacity uh, might become a problem for us. There are many uh, of our buildings, again, we've been around for 75 years, not all our buildings are built for this kind of energy usage. Um, but we also see, you know, cities and villages that are not built for, for this type of energy consumption. So it's something that we cannot take on ourselves, but we need collaboration to, to fix. And then, of course, as, as we heard before, also the price of transformation is still keeping many from moving forward. Now, we know when we make our business cases and, and, and when we crunch the numbers, we see that this is an investment that will long-term lead to lower costs uh, and mitigate a huge business risk. But still, there is an initial investment to be made, and that's really keeping many um, from transforming. While a lot of the challenges for IKEA have been around the early stage of the commercial electric vehicle market, the company, of course, also faces internal pressures when it tries to reach such an audacious goal. This is what Angela had to say about that. I think the key uh, lesson we have learned so far is that we need to challenge the current ways of working. So this is about us as IKEA also stepping outside of our comfort zone a little bit. The problem with being around for a very long time is that you're very comfortable with doing things in a certain way, right? Um, so we have a lot of people, you know, feeling like we've been doing fulfillment uh, this way for X number of years and it's been working just fine. But I think now we really, we're at a point in time where if we do this right, if we set up our, our e-commerce, uh, our multi-channel fulfillment right from the start, where we can get not only uh, sustainability benefits, but also lower costs, hopefully short and lead times, and make deliveries more convenient for our customers. But it will require from us that we start thinking in new ways. Um, 
to do that, I think it's important that we don't sit around and wait for a perfect solution because the technology is on the market today. You can buy electric trucks good enough to deliver goods. Um, and we've showed that in Shanghai. It is doable. And I think if we're going to wait to have perfect trucks um, that will perform exactly like the ones we've had now for many years, look the same, feel the same, um, then, you know, we can sit here and wait for a very long time. And by the time we get moving, it will probably be too late. So I think it's about deploying, really getting those first truck rollings or, or setting up these new, um, these new fulfillment networks and just start doing it. And then we can work on making it better as we go. And to be able to do this then, to find better ways of, of working, we need new types of partners. Well, we need old types of partners too, to be fair. So like I said, we don't own a fleet. So of course, our service providers are crucial. And for us, it's important to find the service providers who want to go on this journey with us and who share our vision um, of a more sustainable future uh, and more sustainable life in the city centers. But it's not enough for us anymore to work only with service providers. And this has really um, sort of catapulted us in, in new types of partnerships and new types of discussion with energy companies, with, with car and truck manufacturers, uh, with mobility as a service companies, with charging infrastructure companies, um, with startups, with all of these different things that we have not really engaged with in this area before. And we see one of our key success factors coming out of Shanghai was that we started working with an EV sharing platform. Now, this was completely new for IKEA. Nobody even knew what an EV sharing platform was. But in the end, uh, that allowed us to cut months out of the project. And that's why we were already done in January, because we were able to secure vehicles and chargers uh, a lot faster. And that's exactly the type of collaboration we need to sort of push outside of our comfort zone and really take action here and now. And then hopefully um, by, by finding partners, also peer retailers to move forward together with, we can hopefully not too slowly, but we can we surely start transforming this industry and finding solutions that will lower air pollution, lower noise pollution, and also lower congestion. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, you can go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organizations, stories, and events we mentioned this week. While you're there, check out our other podcasts, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Our email is 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week, this time from Minneapolis, Minnesota, the site of our Circularity 19 conference. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for tuning in.